Okay, so let me let me start tonight by um, welcoming you you all to a conversation with Brian McLaren. Uh, this conversation is going to be recorded. Uh, the video will be put up on the Cory Miller YouTube account. Um, in addition, we'll record the audio and we'll post that as a podcast on my personal podcast um, account, which is which is Guardians of the Flame. Um, so tonight is limited to about a hundred participants. Um, but we hope it'll reach many more through the podcast and the video. This conversation, if you're listening to this in the future, uh, this is uh, coming on the 19th of December, it's been recorded. So it's a season where many Christians around the world both remember and anticipate the arrival of Christ. So let me introduce uh, our guest tonight. Uh, Brian McLaren will be known to many of you through his books, through his many visits to the UK and Ireland over the last two decades. Some of his most well-known books are A New Kind of Christian, um, which I have to say, <laughs> I remember my my mum reading reading that book, and I thought this is this would be interesting what my mum thinks of of this. She's a, she's a good evangelical, and uh, well, she's a but she's a generous soul. Um, and at the end of it, she closed the book and she goes, well, I think I'm a universalist. <laughs> and uh, and that was a compliment. She was, th you know, she goes, you know, if, if Jesus didn't die for everyone, then that would be a bit of a failure. Anyway, um, that was my, don't know why I threw that in there. I couldn't resist. My 80 year old mother is down below at the moment. And she's a fan of yours, Brian, too. So, so among Brian's books, A New Kind of Christian, A Generous Orthodoxy, we make the road by walking uh, in his two most recent books, Faith After Doubt and his latest book, Do I Stay Christian? I think Brian is a kind and wise pastor for many people who have found their faith shipwrecked through disillusionment or through disappointment. What makes his voice stand out is that while he can articulate a serious critique of Christendom, he also provokes us to live out the best and maybe most challenging parts of the Jesus way. Uh, so it's um, a, a real privilege to to um, welcome you, Brian, tonight, and to welcome everyone here for this conversation. I'll ask a few questions, and then uh, probably for the last 20 minutes, we'll open the floor. Uh, if you'd like to uh, post a question in the chat, then go ahead and do that. So, Brian, you're very you're very welcome here to this virtual space. Where where are you joining us from tonight, actually? I live in Southwest Florida, so I live in a place where today is about as perfect weather as you could get, maybe uh, maybe 21 or 22 Celsius and sunny and all the rest. But um, I'm leaving tomorrow to go visit my children in the north central part of the United States where it is bitterly, bitterly cold. So okay. uh, I'll be able to empathize, empathize with uh, all of you a little better in a few days. Good. Well, we've our temperature is was freezing for the last week, and it's just begun to thaw. So, um, anyway, so we're we're there. Well, let's get into our conversation. Uh, Brian, you've you've written uh, your most recent book. Do I stay Christian? Uh, can you tell us about that book? Um, what's it about, and and why did you write the book? Sure. Well, I, in, in all honesty, I suppose most authors to some degree write books for themselves, you know, <laughs> they, they write the book that they, they think they need to read. Um, and I grew up in a very conservative uh, Christian home. Those of you in Ireland would be more familiar with uh, my background than a lot of places because it originated with someone from uh, your, your uh, fair land. Uh, but I grew up a uh, Plymouth Brethren or uh, Christian Brethren. And uh, when I was, I think, 10 or 11 years old, I by that time, I was already thinking my days as a Christian are numbered, um, uh, in part because I loved science. And uh, I, I was uh, instructed that I, by one of my Sunday school teachers, you can either believe in God or evolution. And I, I was very sure about evolution and much less sure about God. So I thought maybe I'll be out of here in a few years. Um, plus, I liked rock and roll music. And now fundamentalists love rock and roll, but back then they didn't. And so um, I didn't think that was going to work. 
And I loved literature and philosophy and so on. And any place that felt like it gave freedom for imagination and honest uh, exploration. And I just didn't feel that would be available to me. So, and then in my teenagers, I had a very powerful spiritual experience that kept me on the Christian path, but uneasy at the same time um, with uh, an awful lot that, that Christian faith represented. Um, I never planned on becoming a pastor, but I ended up uh, in my 20s uh, leaving. I was a college English teacher. I left teaching and became a pastor for 24 years. And during that time, a lot of the people who started attending our little church uh, were having the same struggles and questions that I had had. And um, so I started writing about that. My first book came out in 1998, a long time ago now. And um, uh, and I so I've just felt this affinity with people who are struggling with their religious identity, especially their Christian identity. And then I think in the here in the United States, 2016 marked a kind of watershed where conservative Catholics and conservative Protestants uh, lined up behind Donald Trump in such high numbers that lots of other people said, I just don't know if I want to be part of this religious community anymore. As well, anyone who cares about the environment and, and takes climate change seriously, people who care about racism, people who care about equality for women, people who care about equality for LGBTQ persons, all of these issues, it felt like they were at odd, people felt at odds with their Christian identity. And so I had so many people coming to me with their questions that that really made me think this is the time I should try to write. Uh, I should try to write this book. And I, I should add maybe what sort of tipped me over to say, yeah, this is really the book I have to write is the number of clergy that, um, that also were telling me they were not only thinking about leaving the ministry, uh, Catholic priests, uh, Anglican uh, priests, Protestant pastors of every different stripe. They not only were thinking about leaving Christian ministry, but Christian faith as well. So um, th those created the context that I thought this is a book that sort of is asking me to write it. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, Brian, I was uh, reflecting on the the story probably most of us are familiar with of St. Francis of Assisi and yeah. uh, seeing a, a, a church that was falling down and hearing this mystical voice to rebuild my church. Um, I imagine many of us may have felt like St. Francis, that intuitive desire to kind of rebuild the church, so to speak. Um, and yet that effort takes effort, sacrifice, passion, uh, and indeed love. Uh, many of us may feel like we've we've run out of all of those attributes. It was passion we poured into activities in the past, mm -hmm. and now we're tired. We've been burned out. We've or we've been we've been burned, or or we may have been burned out. Uh, yeah. And there's not much left. Um, how do you kind of uh, help us to either renew our energy to kind of rebuild the church, or um, or is there? You know, how how do you respond to that that kind of sense of fatigue, but yes. also the desire to kind of somehow be part of changing yes. things? Oh, well, thanks for asking that, Johnny. And actually, as you say that, I can't help but go back. You know, I was in in uh, Northern Ireland in in August and September of this year, and um, and I remember meeting with a Presbyterian woman, uh, clergy. And she and I felt that tiredness in her voice as she said, you know, she was one of the first women ordained. And then she said to think that I would be nearing the end of my career and that we would be we would be moving backwards on equality of women in the church. She you could just feel the fatigue in in her voice. And and so the first thing I would say is for people who are feeling that fatigue it's not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong to feel this. You feel this because you cared and you had, you had high hopes. Um, and, and reality isn't conforming to your hopes and, and the timetable you'd hope for isn't happening. But the first thing I'd say is if you're discouraged, discouragement is, is an important part of life. And if you feel disillusioned, disillusionment is 
an important part of life. And, and I would just say, I, I in some sense, I would encourage you to welcome that fatigue, welcome that discouragement. Let this is part of your life. And, and instead of feeling guilty about it or trying to fix it through some quick solution, I'd say one of the ways we learn to live with it is by living with it instead of fighting, uh, fighting it. Um, and I think, um, well, it's, this is a very relevant question for me because of the next book that I want to write, um, which, uh, I plan to start right after the new, the new year, which will be called life after doom. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about all the people who care about climate change and all the people who care about poverty and inequality and racism and all these other issues I just mentioned a few minutes ago. And on so many fronts, people feel like we've poured our lives into this work and things are getting worse instead of better. And uh, how do we live with that feeling that uh, that our best efforts have not been good enough to get done what we hope um, would happen? And so this is a, a subject I, I, I feel deeply and almost wish that, you know, we could just have a couple of hours just to, for all of us to chat about, about this question. Mm -hmm. But maybe the only other thing I'd say, in addition to welcoming the feeling, is this is a chance for us, in a sense, to look back in history and imagine many of our ancestors, um, either our own physical ancestors, or you might say our spiritual ancestors. So for, you know, I think you all can imagine this from your side of the Atlantic. But there must have been white people and there must have been white Christians in the 16 and 17 and early 1800s in, in the United States that knew slavery was evil and knew slavery was wrong and knew that it could not stand. And they would have fought their entire lives to try to shift public opinion. And you think they had to fight for you know, 250 years. Mm. Um, and, and generation after generation would fight and fight and fight. And at the end of their lives, things were getting worse, not better. Mm. Um, and, and it's this reminder, I'm so glad they didn't give up the fight even more intensely. I feel this mm. on my side of the pond. Mm. When I think about beautiful African born human beings who were enslaved here in my country, and had to decide, do I get up another day? And when they had children, and I don't know how many folks in Europe know this, but a huge part of American history that's a, a dark secret, it's still not acknowledged, is that white slave owners, there was a policy of mass rape of their slaves, because this way they would produce lots and lots of more children who would be born into slavery. And it was this sexual domination that was also an economic exploitation. And you think, what would it have been like to be a mother or a, or a father and think, will my children have to live in this, uh, in this life? And for generation after generation, they did. And for generations, things got worse. They didn't get better. But every all of my African-American friends today have deep reverence and gratitude for all of their ancestors, great, 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 great grandparents who were willing to live their lives and hope that their children's lives or their grandchildren's lives or their great, great grandchildren's lives might be better. And, and so this helps me put in perspective, you know, this sense that sometimes in some ways, this is one of the greatest honors, even though it doesn't feel like it, but sometimes we are invited to live our lives for causes that will not get better in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. And wow. we still have the faith to try to invest our lives. Yeah. I, and I'm sure there are, there are parallel historic stories, obviously in your land and in your culture as well, that would fit in that category. Yeah. That's um, very powerful, Brian. Thank you. Um, I was listening. I have your latest book and I've read it. And, um, but as well as that, I've, uh, about a month ago, maybe two two months ago, whenever it came out, um, I listened to a podcast interview you did with on the Nomad podcast, yes. um, and uh, I really appreciate your 
all your interviews on that uh, on that podcast. And and you said this phrase uh, that I came back to today. Um, you said that you think in your in our lifetimes, you think forms of Christianity will get uglier, but that also we will see more beautiful expressions of Christianity than we've seen in our lifetime. Uh, and I suppose that's part of what you're doing in your book is giving yeah. uh, reasons why people shouldn't stay Christian, you know, the ugly, toxic yeah. stuff, but also the beautiful stuff. Um, can you unpack what you mean by beautiful expressions yeah. of, of Christianity and, and maybe examples of that? So I, I'm going to make a confession here. I, I wish this were true, but <laughs> it is sadly, it's very true. Um I, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I would have been happy for Christianity to have a renewal that didn't take racism as seriously as we need to take it. In other words, I just didn't see how serious that issue was and how deeply embedded it was in Christian theology. I would have been happy to see renewal in worship and renewal in preaching and and so on. And if if the environment were uh, uh, an emphasis, that would have been good, but I would have been happy to see it even if the environment weren't an emphasis. And so what has happened as things have gotten worse and as the Christian, as so many Christian leaders have lined up on the harmful side of all of these issues, I think it's made me, and I think probably a lot of you feel, the only kind of meaningful spiritual reform would be a meaningful theological and spiritual reform that takes all of these issues seriously and that doesn't treat them like fine print at the bottom of a contract, but treats them as part of the contract itself, if I can use that legal terminology. Mm -hmm. And so what I think is going to happen among the people who stay Christian is they will not be able to stomach staying Christian unless it's a form of Christianity that takes all of these issues very, very seriously. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and, and that would be the kind of beauty that I would that I would expect to say to see, uh, as you know, in, in the book, Johnny, uh, one of the things I try to deal with is what I think is a very harmful. I call it a pre-critical assumption in Christianity. In other words, something that's not a doctrine, but it underlies a lot of our doctrines. And it's this idea that the best is always in the past and that we're just trying to hold on so things don't sink any lower that we used to be at the top of the mountain and we're we've been sliding down the slippery slope and we've just got to stop ourselves from sliding i i think that's unscientific i think it's actually unbiblical i think it's mm -hmm. theologically uh indefensible idea uh mm -hmm. but it is a deeply held idea among so many christians and there are all kinds of reasons for that we could talk about um, but what that's done is it's made people feel that the best is in the past. So we have to hold on to the past as much as we can. What does that mean? It's meant for many of our congregations have been singing the same songs for a hundred, 150, 200, 250 years. We we've been reciting creeds that people needed to recite in the fourth and fifth and sixth century. And we haven't asked what needs to be recited in the 21st century. Um, what are the key issues that need to be addressed today? And so the beauty that I could imagine would be, the, the word that comes to my mind is renaissance, in the very best sense of the word, that we could wake up and say, the capacity for rebirth is right at our fingertips, and we can, we can seize it. That would mean a, an explosion in all the churchly things we do, like liturgy, and the explosion of creativity in liturgy, and hymnody, and uh, and all of our methodologies of spiritual formation, many of which are somewhat mechanical and rote, you know, and they're producing the kind of results you'd expect. But and also in preaching and in leadership and in so many other areas. But I also think it would mean that the way we live out our faith in our business, the way we live out our faith in our politics, these could be areas of greater beauty going forward. And I, here's the irony. I think all of you can picture this, even though we don't like to have to picture it. You could imagine that even if the times get darker, the lives that people live could get more beautiful. Can everybody see that? Mm -hmm. You could see that the times could get worse, which would make people have to make a choice 
to live more beautiful lives. So that that's mm. what I meant by that. Mm. Yeah. That's actually really meaningful. Um, I don't, don't even exactly know how to ask this question. So, um, which is always a dangerous thing when you, you're recording <laughs> something, but as I was reflecting today, I was remembering, um, I was kind of, I suppose, reflecting on, you know, the, the many people that are, are leaving traditional church denominations, both in your country and over here, we had a recent census results and um, yeah, there's, there's lots of changes when it comes to kind of church activity and, and life. Um, and I was remembering uh, at the start of Phyllis Tickle's book, you know, The Great Emergence, uh, she talked about these kind of 500 year kind of um, cycles, you know, that there's a, a big shakeup, <laughs> to put it mildly, every 500 years. And I thought, is this just, uh, I wonder what your thoughts on that. I'm, I know that you would know about that kind of, because uh, I as I've reflected, I kind of feel like we're living in the midst of the fallout of social media algorithms and populism and, you know, economic downturns and climate catastrophe. Is this a 500 year, year old cycle or is this just the product of lots of bad things all happening <laughs> or good things, yeah. Or, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I should say that Phyllis uh, Tickle was one of my dear friends. I just, uh, uh, one of the lovely people I've met in my life who I can't think about her without having a smile come to my face. Mm. Such a delightful person and deeply encouraging to me as a friend as well. She was, I don't know, she wouldn't want me to say how many years older than me she was, <laughs> but she was a bit older than me. And, uh, and she just took on sort of a big sister role in my life and was just mm. a sweet person to me. I, I'm so grateful for the pleasure of knowing her. And, um, and I think she was not trying to be prescriptive, but descriptive. Mm -hmm. And of course, when you think about the first 2000 years of church history, it does break into 500 year chapters pretty well. The early and patristic period up to the fall, uh, first the, the, uh, almost simultaneously within a century or two, uh, the alignment of the Christian faith with the, with the Roman Empire, and then the the dissolution of the Roman Empire. So she called that the great fall of the Roman Empire. And then uh, about a thousand came the schism, the great schism between East and West, which really was building for about 500 years. And then she looks at the Reformation, the Great Reformation, as another one of these turning points. And she was suggesting that we're at one of those turning points now. And I think she's right. I don't think anyone could believe that the Protestant Reformation is in great shape and not in need, at least as great a need of for Reformation as the Catholic Church was. Like the Catholic Church was in a pretty bad way around 1500, but I don't think the Protestant Church is in any better sense shape globally now. You know, uh, in in many ways. So I think you could make a case that. We're, we're ripe for that kind of a shift now. Um, but just to add another uh, layer to, the, to that question, uh, Johnny, um, in the book, I quote Ilya Delio, who's a Franciscan, a Catholic nun, who's a brilliant intellect. And Ilya, Sister Ilya, draws from the work of another Catholic theologian, uh, American Catholic theologian in the 1960s named Ewart Cousins, who drew from the philosophy of European intellectual Carl Jaspers earlier in the 20th century, who made this observation that, um, uh, that there was this thing that happened for about 400 years before Christ and 100 years after Christ, a roughly 500-year period um, that he called the axial age. And in some ways, the way he described it, these are, this is my, my sort, sort of shorthand, but that human beings, we were tribal creatures before this. We were part of tribes and chiefdoms and, and, and we, we didn't have the luxury for individual thought, mm. but um, that, that when you think about the Buddha, who then in a sense invites people on a quest for individual enlightenment or you think about Jesus who talked about salvation, but uh, that salvation, uh, I don't think he meant it as an individualistic thing, but it quickly became an individualistic thing. Or uh, And in between them come Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, who were in a sense 
exercising the individual intellect and brain to think for yourself, you know, um, and uh, what uh, th these Catholic philosophers in the 20th century, e uh, uh, Ewart Cousins, and, uh, and then later Ilya Delio, what they've grappled with is that it feels like that individualism pendulum swung as far as it could go. And now we're realizing that we better care about the whole, not just the me and not even just the us of our nation and not even just the us of humanity, but we have to care for the whole of humans and animals and plants and inanimate things like the climate and, you know, so on. We have to care about these. And so we could be at the end of that first axial age of individualism. And now we're trying to integrate individualism with a more communal mindset. And I just think that is a very good way that I, that rings true for me. I'm part of what's going on. It's it's so you might say it's even bigger than a 500 year shift. If, mm. if those thinkers are right. Mm. Mm. Thanks, Brian. Um, maybe as we continue to co uh, have conversation, I'll just say to everyone listening, if you'd like to um, write a question in the chat, uh, please go ahead and do that. And we can take those questions as we go. Um, uh, Brian, I, I wonder, um, for a lot of my life, I've been involved uh, in probably slightly more conservative spheres than Corrie Mueller. I've been working at Corrie Mueller for the last year, and it's a, it's a great bunch of people from all kinds of uh, backgrounds, but tend to be more inclusive than, than the kind of traditions I was in. Um, and so I, I'm aware as I was preparing for this conversation, the word reconciliation uh, can sound different uh, depending on where you're sitting. Um, uh, if you're in a conservative space, it, it tends to mean, uh, well, I kind of sometimes remember it meaning to me, everyone will kind of come back together to believe the same thing. That'll be fairly kind of conservative. I wonder when you think, you know, Carmilla is an organization founded on this kind of heart of reconciliation, um, but probably much more universal. I mean, Ray Davey, who started Carmilla, I mean, he was seeing Dresden being bombed by the allies, by his own side. And he was, it was this kind of inclusion of people outside of the fold, if you like, or yeah. uh, what does that mean for you? Kind of the word reconciliation and the concept of it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm just thinking, first of all, that Ray Davy, it seems to me, epitomizes this shift. He's, he's watching civilization self-destruct in a world war. And, and he's thinking, we can't think this way. We can't stay in this us, them thinking anymore. We have to find a way toward bringing enemies together so that they become friends. And, and so they, at the very least, learn to see one another as neighbors and uh, who we have to learn to live in peace with. And so he certainly represents this shift in a very powerful way. And he was, you know, ahead of his time. And, mm. and all of us on this call, we may be ahead of the, in, in, in the sense that the majority of people don't understand the need for reconciliation and peace and and thinking of the common good not just my individual good or my political party's good or my nation state's good or even my religion's good but thinking of the common good so this is part of that shift we were we were just talking about the other thing i think of when i think of this word reconciliation is that it's something that a native american friend of mine a uh, really interesting fellow if any of you want to look him up he's a navajo uh, uh, member of the Navajo tribe. His name is Mark Charles, also a committed Christian. Hmm. Um, and Mark uh, says uh, that in the United States, we can't talk about reconciliation because reconciliation, the word says reconcile, come together again. And he says, we've never been together. <laughs> we need to experience conciliation. In other words, we're, we have never had a peaceful encounter. Our, mm. our first encounters were combative and hateful. Mm. And, and that's where, and I think that's part of, well, there's a lot we could do in, in, in mm. analyzing the, the assumptions we can even bring in the word conciliation that, well, we used to get along, mm. well, maybe we never got along. And maybe this is 
the beginning of learning to mature into peace. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my uh, d- dear colleagues, many of you know, I, I work uh, uh, part-time with the Center for Action and Contemplation started by Richard Rohr. And one of my, Richard has many famous little aphorisms, but one of my favorites that's just so wise and true, he says, the steps toward maturity are necessarily immature. (laughs) You let that sink in. The steps toward maturity are necessarily immature. If you were mature, you wouldn't need the steps, right? So, uh, So what we might say is we've been taking the steps toward what it means to be mature humans, which let's assume mature humans are humans who know how to love rather than hate, how to forgive rather than exact revenge, how to seek to understand rather than prejudge and condemn. Um, that, that, that the human species is a immature species and we're trying to grow toward maturity before we destroy ourselves. <laughs> so, mm. so when you say reconciliation, that's what I think of. And, and mm. I, I think we're moving to it, it's, it's maturity that we're, we're trying mm. to move toward. And, and we're on a very short timetable, unfortunately, mm. because uh, the cost of not maturing is, is so mm. high right now, both in our relationship to each other as human beings. And we have to reconcile with the planet mm. uh, because we've been living at war with the planet uh, for, you know, the, I mean, really this one goes back to the agricultural revolution. So there's mm. about 12,000 years of, mm. of, of prospering by living unsustainably with the planet. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. Mark Charles, I've, I've had a few interactions and I always enjoy his contributions on, um, I dare I say Twitter, Elon Musk's uh, platform now, but uh, don't know if, if he and we will find other platforms, but uh, uh, he's a he's a great guy. I wonder, um, I when I asked the question, I realized I was kind of leading the way into another question I'd given you a little heads up about, which was uh, a book that you uh, wrote with many of you will know Gareth Higgins, uh, Gareth from Hollywood, uh, Hollywood Belfast, Hollywood uh, North Down. Um, and uh, I interviewed him for a pod for my podcast a few years ago, and he talked about this book he was he was writing with you called The Seventh Story. And I suppose mm-hmm. you were alluding to to that a little bit when you talked about the us and them. And um, yeah. uh, I wonder, could you just because I think it might be helpful for this particular audience to kind of unpack that a little bit. I know it's not yeah. your latest book, but I think it's a it, yeah, yeah. it sounded like a brilliant kind of concept. I'd love I'd love to hear you talk sure. about it. Well, I should say, I'll just give a quick uh, overview of it. Um, and I should say, I had uh, I had started working on this idea in a book I wrote back in 2007 or, or 2008 called Everything Must Change. And, uh, and then the idea kept unfolding and unfolding a little bit more. And I shared it with Gareth and he said, gosh, this is so relevant to my experience in Ireland and in the troubles here. And he's been a great encouragement to me. And then we've, so we uh, wrote a children's book that came out and then went out of print and it's going to be re-released in a new format. Uh, I think at the end of this year, it's called Corey and the seventh story. So if folks are interested in that, but also um, if you go to the seventh story.com, I think you could, you could get an ebook version of this should Mm -hmm. be easy to come by online at, at any rate. But um, but here's the big idea that um, we human beings in our pursuit of peace and security, which are good things, have tended to live by seven stories. I'm sorry, by six stories. Um, and I'll just run through them very quickly. They're easy to remember. Uh, if somebody wants to, you could write these down. As I mentioned them, put them in the chat if, if you want. But uh, the first is domination. This says, our group is only safe if we dominate the other groups. Um, It's peace and security through domination. Very popular uh, uh, story to live by. Whole civilizations have lived by this story. What about the people who are not in power by those stories? Well, then they have the revolution story. The only way we can have uh, peace and security is getting those people off our backs who are dominating us. So domination revolution, that's the second story. 
what happens if your group is dominating, but things are not going well, you need somebody to blame. And so this is the ever popular, I call it the purification story, the story that says everything would be all right if it weren't for those people. And we just need to clean them out and we'll be fine. Those dirty people are causing all of our trouble. Another really popular story. What happens if you're one of the people who are being shamed by the purification story? Well, then you might want to escape. That's I call that the isolation story or the, uh, the evacuation story. How do I get away from these people who are treating me so bad and find some new place where I can live in peace? Um, and whole nations gets formed uh, when people in mass leave. Uh, the refugee story is an isolation um, story. I have to get away. Um, what happens when you can't get away? Then you might live by a victimization story. That is the story of, of course, I'm in misery. Look how everyone's treating me so badly and I have no hope. Um, and a lot of people, that's the only story left them, that fifth story, sixth story. What if you see all this going on and you think the only way I can get ahead is by making enough money, owning enough weapons or owning enough land that I can build my own little island of safety. And we could call that the accumulation story. So those are the six stories that I think dominate our culture. And, uh, I came started thinking about this because I, as a preacher, I was preaching through the gospel and I, I was understanding that the different groups that Jesus interacted with represented these six different stories. Um, and then Jesus comes along with a seventh story that he called the story of the kingdom of God. He called it good news. And news is a story of something's happening that you should know about. It's a story in progress or a story that's unfolding. And um, and his story was a story that if we would rethink everything, if we would change our assumptions, that's, I think, a good paraphrase of what repent means. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's within reach that we could live by a different story. And it's a story of reconciliation. So um, uh, I hope, yeah, I hope that's not too mm. much too fast uh, for folks. But yeah. yeah, no, it's great. I think there's a lot of people typing and writing and um, oh, great. Uh, yeah. So I think that's uh, really helpful. It's the, so the seventh story.com is where, where you find that. Um, I'll ask one more question of my own, and then I'm going to um, come to some of the other questions that people have asked. And that's simply a question I've, I've legitimately and very honestly wrestled with my wife and I, as we raise kids. Um, and I think of Richard Rohr's kind of uh, order, disorder, uh, reorder. I mean, he's, he's probably not the one that came up with it. Um, you know, construction, deconstruction, reconstruction. Um, how do you raise kids? How do you raise family? How do you uh, do catechesis, discipleship um, in a way that is not feeding people some of the overly simplistic slash binary slash some almost kind of buying into some of these six stories you talked about how do you do that kind of forming particularly in kids i suppose is my uh, thought um in a way that is faithful to where we're at now which is realizing this kind of bigger picture of reconciliation and it's not always so simple and um yes if i hope that makes it clear what i'm asking yeah well, let me say, Johnny, over the last 15 or 20 years, that is the most common question I'm asked in my travels and speaking. And I don't think we have a good answer for it yet, but I think it's the question we have to grapple with. I was just on a phone call right before this. Um, there's a group of us trying to pull together people who write children's books and people who design Sunday school curriculum and people who do summer camp work. And we're trying to pull together as many Christians uh, in this kind of space that we're talking about who are asking that question. And, um, and so we're in, it, it, we're in the process, I think, as, as communities of trying to, trying to figure that out. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of the reasons that Gareth and I are producing this as a children's book, because mm -hmm. we want to give parents something, a, a way that they can orient their children. And, and it's a story that then if you want to tell the story of Jesus within that larger story, Jesus looks very different than 
uh, than somebody who in whose name we dominate, <laughs> or it's mm -hmm. somebody who gives us the power to accumulate, or somebody in whose name we isolate, right? It's an alternative, because the Christian religion has played by all six of those stories we talked about. Um, and we think we should maybe take Jesus story more seriously. Um, but I think the, the thing I would say is, is, uh, in fact, in do I stay Christian? Um, I have a, uh, one of the chapters, uh, is a summary of my previous book, which is called faith after doubt. And I think one of the things that we as parents have to do is think about how we bring, where we want to bring our children. And um, by the time they're 17 or 18. And I think because in many ways, our churches have not given, like our churches haven't given a good answer to us of that. Um, uh, and they, they haven't given an answer that is acceptable to us as parents and or our children. Um, and so it's just going to mean that all of us who are parents and grandparents, and I would say Christian leaders and scholars and so on, that we've got to go back and ask that question again and and do the best we can in the meantime, including being honest with our children to say, I really want you to have a deep spiritual life, but I, I don't want to teach you what I was taught in the way I was taught it. And uh, I, I think even just to start there is an act of great honesty to our children. And I think anything that we give them that's not honest will either do them harm or not stick. Mm. And so the honesty is super important, I think. Mm. Um, so uh, thanks, Brian. Uh, just uh, really helpful, everything you're saying. You know, so um, so there's a, a few questions that have, have come in. I, I may, forgive me, um, those of you here, I, I may not have time to get through all of them, but um, Diane asks about contemplative practices uh, uh, do you see a place for the integration of contemplative practices and the renewal? Uh, she's asking of Protestant churches. Um, yes. So, yeah, can you unpack? I know that you're involved with the Center for yeah. Action and Contemplation. Uh, yeah. So let me try something on for uh, for whoever asked this question and all of you. Um, there are deep contemplative traditions in the Christian faith, and there are deep Buddhist contemplative traditions and deep Hindu and Jewish and Muslim. So these contemplative traditions exist across faith communities. And they don't necessarily, they aren't necessarily the leading form of any of our religious communities. You might think, oh, Buddhism isn't. No, well, when you hear about Buddhism in the West, you very often hear about contemplative forms of Buddhism. But any of you have spent a lot of time in Thailand or Cambodia, uh, you, you've seen that the, the kind of street-level Buddhism that's lived and practiced there, there are an awful lot of people who ha have never really learned much about Buddhist contemplative practice. So let me make a proposal that contemplative practice is answering a human need, whatever your religion. And here's the human need, that we don't know what to do with our brains. <laughs> um, that we have brains that have a, a deep uh, structure to them that has been evolving, that we inherited from fish and reptiles. This is the part of our brain that helps us survive. Um, some people call it our instinctual brain, or it's often associated with the amygdala or the brainstem. And people often call it primitive. I don't think of it as primitive. I think it's the most highly developed part of our brain in the sense that it's been around for the longest and it's the fastest and it's what keeps you alive. It's all of your reflexes and it's, yeah, it's very powerful. And then on top of that evolved the mammalian brain. And if you think of mammals, they're the, the, the stage of evolutionary development where you have to care about your babies. <laughs> you don't just, you know, birds begin to care about their babies. Actually, they care a lot about their babies. But when you get to mammals, you really have to care about your babies. So you have to have emotion. And in order to take care of your babies, you have to care about your family, your grandparents and your grandchildren and your cousins. And then you have these expanding levels of care. So the mammalian brain is the emotional brain and the part of the brain that's really related to loving and connecting and bonding. And then you have 
the, the what people call the human the primate brain the human brain the cerebral cortex that we think of as our individual intellect and our ability to think for ourselves and these three parts of our brain and and we could divide them into many submodules too but if you just think those three parts of our brains are interacting faster than we could be aware of it's happening at the speed of electricity of neurons firing in our brains and we're trying to negotiate between like three members of a committee inside of our head that, and it's very hard. And most of us, in a sense, we, we never take practice. We never take effort to try to strengthen the ability of our brains to function. And I think contemplative practice is where instead of saying, are you thinking the right thoughts? We, we ask, are you thinking about your thinking? <laughs> and are you trying to be conscious of your consciousness? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's this very, very important work. And I think that we're not going to get to where we want to be going forward, until becoming conscious of our consciousness and consciously trying to lead and direct our consciousness becomes part of what it means to become a mature human being. Um, part of what it means to grow up and face adulthood. So, uh, yeah, a lot we could say about that. But the short answer is, I think it's a really important question. You know, we often say Jesus got up early and went out before dawn to spend hours in prayer. We think Jesus must have had a very long prayer list. <laughs> but later in Jesus' life, he says, look, don't repeat yourself endlessly. Don't go into autopilot just talking you know, as if you will be heard for your much speaking. So the, the reason Jesus went off in quiet was not because he needed more time to say more words to God. And I think one of the things that could really help us understand Jesus is to see Jesus as a contemplative who was going out and spending that time in silence and in nature and in solitude, opening himself to the presence of God. And allowing something to settle and be centered in his own being that would help him as he went out into the crush of the crowds and the controversy of the Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians and all the rest. Mm -hmm. mm. Well, um, it's uh, really meaningful, Brian. Um, there's uh, another question here that's um, uh, from uh, Diana, uh, and asking a question, I suppose many of us who find ourselves in in church spaces um, have to ask: How do we deal with maybe it's like cognitive dissonance? It's like, as she's asking: Is it possible to reconcile a calling to ministry? And she's saying in the Anglican Church with a deep concern about hierarchy and patriarchy of the established church. Um, I'm currently in this conundrum. It's very confusing, and I think she's speaking for probably many of us. Um, yeah, your thoughts on that? Oh, what a good question. I'll just tell a quick story. I I took a friend of mine who is from a, you know, low church kind of background to a high Anglican uh, mass. And my friend leans over to me and says, I can't stand this. I'm getting out of here. And I lean over and whisper to him, uh, "What? what's wrong? What's wrong? He says, all of this bowing and scraping it's just reeks of hierarchy and authoritarianism and I can't stand it. So he got up and left and I stayed for the rest of the service. And then I went out and we were talking later and I said to him, listen, I totally get it. And I think you're right. There's all this, uh, all this sort of ritual submission to a hierarchy. I said, but there's another way to see this. And I said, you know, you may have noticed that whenever the acolytes would bow in front of the priest, the priest would bow back to the acolytes. And I said, so I think there's a way to understand what you see there as a performance of hierarchy, but I also think there's a way to see it as a subversion of hierarchy. Um, and, and, uh, and even the sort of final act of the, of the mass or the Eucharist of the leaders serving food to the people in a sense they're taking the role of servants and they're not being served but they're serving 
So I said, I think there's a way you could see everything that happened there as a subversion of hierarchy. <laughs> and he said, you've got a better imagination than I do, but I think it's true. And I think there are things that those of us who are involved in those systems, we can either reinforce hierarchy, patriarchy, all kinds of other things, or we can actually use the, the, the setting itself to uh, subvert and convey the opposite meaning. Now, there's a long way to go in this, but I think I certainly think it can be done. You be, me, began by mentioning St. Francis before. Mm -hmm. And of course, St. Francis, this is so much of his life, is trying to yeah. model a different kind of leadership that is not about the pomp and the glory and uh, and all the rest. And and for him, it's epitomized in him embracing a leper. Uh, and it, it's, it's embodied in him uh, singing and praying with the birds. Mm. Uh, it, it's, it, his, he embodies this. In, in fact, the most dramatic, it, it's embodied by him when he's standing in front of the bishop in Assisi and he strips naked mm. and he stands naked and gives the clothing that his father had given to him back to his father. Uh, it's this, uh, yeah, I mean, he becomes a fascinating character in thinking about he and he doesn't he he stays catholic and mm. he stays as he he stays loyal to the church but at the same time he doesn't seek to perpetuate its authoritarianism mm. um i think your answer there also is answering maybe a little bit what robin was asking about how to kind of love uh those around us um maybe those of other faiths and you're talking about the example of of Francis embracing lepers and um, yeah. uh, uh, let me um, just come down um, Kim is asking um, I guess a, a question maybe related to how do we kind of look forward in the future with hope she's saying what do you think stops churches or us moving away uh, from thinking the best is in the past um, how can we make that happen um, yeah, maybe it's she's asking about how do we kind of be people of of hope? Or I mean, I remember many of you on this call will remember the redemptorist priest, uh, Father Jerry Reynolds from Clonard Monasteries, uh, just a beautiful man who sadly died a couple of years ago. Well, a few years ago. And at his funeral, um, it was said about him. He was like a man that came from the future. And it was like, um, I guess he moved from Limerick to West Belfast in the mid 80s. Um, and he was a Catholic priest, but pretty much almost every day of his life, he walked through the Peace Wall there and um, between the Falls and the Shankill and Springfield mm -hmm. Road and walked up and down um, all of the areas around there. And it was just, he said it was, it was said of him, he was like a man that came from the future. He embodied a future that we all want to live in where we can walk through divisions and peace walls and, and maybe Kim's alluding to that. How do we kind of be these people of the future? Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a beautiful story. And I just walked that, I just took that walk myself a few mm -hmm. months ago. So it's, and it, it's bringing back powerful memories. And I love that uh, as he was a man who came from the future. Yeah, I, I think an answer, here's the thing. I think we could do some sophisticated analysis of how our churches got into this past orientation. And it would have to do with Platonism and it would have to do with Augustine and it would have to do with a whole lot of things. It would, it, it would have to, we could do very sophisticated analysis. I don't think we have the time and luxury to bring everybody through that sophisticated analysis to get to a better place. And I, I don't even think we have to do uh, uh, for some people, scholars and so on, they need to do that work. But for most of us, I think what we have to do is just follow the example of this man you just mentioned, uh, uh, Johnny, so that we start living as people who have are visiting from the future. And, and instead of, always calling people back to a lost idyllic past, we invite people forward into a better day. Um, if I were to say one theological idea that I think has to be either rejected or recycled and redefined, 
I think what gets us into trouble is this idea of the fall that we were perfect. And then we had this thing called the fall and now it has to be repaired. One way to fix it is to the way a lot of people do. They say before original sin comes original blessing. So in a sense, they, they try to tell the prequel to that false story. But I think another way to say it is to say that a good is, is to go back to what uh, Richard Rohr says uh, that all the steps toward maturity are necessarily immature and that we are immature and we're, we're moving. We can't move back to maturity. We have to move forward to maturity. Um, I I wonder uh, if I could ask a question, uh, Brian, about the present reality of polarization that we, we live in, in many parts of the world. Um, uh, I had to write something recently uh, for a, f- a funding application. We'll see whether we get the funds and, and we'll see whether it was any good. But I was reminded of a, of a book um, uh, by someone called Arlie Hothschild um, called Strangers in Their Own Land. And she had kind of immersed herself in kind of, it was before Trump, it was kind of white uh, Louisiana um, kind of uh, tea party uh, kind of and 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 kind of immersed herself in that kind of uh, society, a worldview, and to try to understand it. Um, and at one point, she she used this phrase: "An empathy wall is an obstacle to deep understanding of another person, mm-hmm. uh, one that can make us feel indifferent or even hostile to those who hold different beliefs or whose childhood is rooted in different circumstances." And uh, it it's got me thinking this idea of an empathy wall. And I've, I think I've heard you talk mm-hmm. about polarization. And I, I wonder if you can kind of help us to uh, navigate a little bit, um, uh, kind of some tools for um, transcending the the algorithms that want to separate us yeah. and the um, the the rage, the outrage that we feel at times, and the need to kind of react. And is there something you can say about that polarization and the ability to transcend it? Well, if we think about maturity, um, we we could say that. And, and by the way, that word maturity is a very powerful word in the in the New Testament. For all of you who are deeply rooted in the New Testament, you might remember. There's a passage in Colossians where Paul says, here's the purpose toward which we labor and strive. So here's my purpose. Here's my mission statement. So that we may present every person complete or mature in Christ. So the idea that we're moving toward maturity, or you think in 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a child, I thought I spoke, I reasoned as a child, but when I became a mature adult, I put childish things aside and he equates maturity with love. So this, I think this, um, this of course then invites us to interrogate what we mean by maturity. What, what is maturity? And, and in the Christian faith, if we were to just start with the basic idea of loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving our neighbor as ourself and knowing that our neighbor includes the outsider, the outcast, and even the enemy I think this puts us on a path of being unsatisfied with anything short of that. And I think one of the reasons for our polarization is nobody has ever successfully invited us or inspired us toward that greater maturity. It's really the fruit. It's, it's really what mystical, what, what mystics and contemplatives in a sense one way to define a mystic or a contemplative is someone who set their goal of maturity to be uh, someone who loves and seeks to be in communion with everything um, and, uh, and seeks to be able to, to join God in God's non-discriminatory love. Uh, That doesn't mean we don't think there's such a thing as right or wrong. It means that we're, deeply grieved and opposed to injustice and wrong and hate and so on and dishonesty and, and, and uh, abuse and so on. But it means that we don't think that the way we're going to solve those problems, we're we're not going to solve hate with hate or abuse with abuse and so on. Mm -hmm. So uh, it seems to me this, that it begins with us refusing to call immaturity mature (laughs) and, 
than in a sense, having an aspiration for something that is beyond all of us, right? But my goodness, we have another day to be alive, which then means another day to grow. And uh, as individuals, as communities, and so on. Um, okay, well, I think we, uh, if I could ask the two more questions that we've left unanswered, uh, unanswered here, Brian, and then we'll call it a day. If um, First of all, Christopher and Vivian Hall, uh, faith is doing what you would do if you had faith. Um, I like that concept. Um, there's a question here that Alex thinks is a bit too controversial. Uh, music in church. <laughs> um, mm. Given your collection of guitars, John asks, uh, how yeah. important is church music? Uh, any thoughts on kind of music and church and the significance it, it plays? Well, I, I think it's terribly important. And I think it's often terrible. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and um, I just think, oh, my goodness, what music could be doing in our midst is so amazing. And, and in some places, people really are exploring the power of music, both in song and also the, you know, we were speaking of contemplation before, and I don't know if any of you have ever thought of this, but any time that you respond to wordless music, in a sense, you're allowing parts of yourself to function that aren't dependent on logic and, and, uh, and so on, um, and language. So, uh, it's very, very important. And in the church world, um, it, uh, here's, what's tragic. I spent the first part of my life, I, because I'm a musician and a songwriter and I love music. I spent the first, uh, uh, you know, decades of my life trying to improve the quality of the music. Um, and unfortunately, we succeeded to some degree, but we never dealt with the content. <laughs> so if, if you sing spiritually harmful and theologically suspect concepts <laughs> with boring old music or exciting new music, you, you haven't maybe dealt with the root of the problem. So, mm. yeah. <laughs> well, that's very good. Um, okay. Maybe the final question, uh, we could go on for a long time, Brian. I really appreciate your generosity in uh, giving us this time. So one more question, and then we'll we'll end our conversation tonight. So uh, Diana wrote this question, which I think really is very good. And you alluded it to before, you alluded to it before, if the concept of reconciliation is problematic, I mean, you talked about Mark Charles and um, and and she says, and for many, the concept of peace is regarded as an ideal from the powerful to appease those who are fighting for liberation. Uh, what is the role of faith as a tool of contemporary peace building? Yes. Oh, my. Well, actually, uh, Johnny, that is such I mean, that's just too good a question to bring up at the end because we <laughs> need another hour just for that question. It's so powerful, and important. But it really circles back to what you called a wall of empathy before. Mm where in a sense, we say, here's us, we'll feel empathy for us. By the way, Jesus said this, when he said, love your enemies, he says, look, don't the Gentiles, the Gentiles love their friends. In other words, you know, we have another saying, there's honor among thieves, thieves, take care of each other, thieves have each other's back if they're in crime together, right? So, mm -hmm. um, so we all have empathy for our in group, but to learn to extend empathy to our to an out group, um, is that's what takes us to a new place. And unfortunately, when you haven't broken that sound barrier, when you haven't broken through that wall of empathy to where you hear the heart and the cry and the agony and the pain of the other and the outsider, when you've never done that, then all that peace means to you is, will you stop making noise and causing trouble and disrupting my peace? Or will you just be quiet and accept that the way things are is the best they're ever going to be for you? And that becomes a form of oppression. So this is why many activists say, if there's no, if there's no justice, there's no true peace. Mm. And so this is where the search for peace is inseparable from the search for justice. And justice means trying to understand the needs of the other, not just the needs of my own in-group. Maybe the last thing I'll say, many of you, very few people, I think, will read this as one of the headlines today. But the United Nations has been gathering 
scientists to talk about the loss of biodiversity on the planet. And today they signed a historic commitment. Now, a lot of us could say it should have happened 20 years ago and it should have been twice as big. But at this point, at least somebody's doing something to say that we human beings have to ask ourselves how much of the earth should be preserved for non-human living creatures. And what's our human responsibility to care? So this involves even hearing the cries of non-human living creatures that don't speak our language, but that speak to us that we can understand when we see a tree withering, or we see the, 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 the ocean has fewer fish in it than it used to. And this is the, the earth speaking to us mm. and, and inviting our empathy. And this is such an important stage, I think, in our, uh, in our spiritual development into more Christ-like people. Isn't it interesting that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, he thought this was really important for people to know, your Father in heaven notices every sparrow that falls in the ground. Your Father in heaven is rejoices in the beauty of the wildflowers out in the field, not the domesticated flowers, just the wildflowers. They, they're precious to God. And this is that expanding our empathy uh, even beyond the walls of all of humanity to creation beyond ourselves. And this, yeah. So I'm so glad we mm. could end with that question. It's a, mm. it's an important one. Yeah. Well, Brian, um, thanks so much again for your time. Uh, for, for those of you listening, this will be available on Corey Miller's YouTube channel. Um, and it will be available as an audio on my podcast, guardians of the flame. Um, I just want to say thank you, Brian, for, I think, uh, articulating something um, about uh, what it means to come from the future. Um, you maybe mm -hmm. embody, embody that somehow. Um, and uh, so thank you for uh, that sense that you have of, of, of showing us a, uh, not just a kinder and gentler way to live, but a more uh, deeper what how did you describe Richard Rohr an immature way you know I mean I think this is uh not that you're you know I think um yeah, it's just very special to have this time thanks for the time and the study you've put into it to help us all to navigate the season we're in um, and let and let me and let me also just say thank you to you Johnny and to the Corimila community and all that you represent and for all of you who find an affinity with the Corimila community this is what a beautiful thing that you're part of this community that cares about mm. these things. So I'm honored to be with you. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, everyone. Um, we, we're going to leave it there and, uh, and, and head over. So thanks, Brian. I'll stop the recording. I think everyone's kind of this clapping going on.